This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. James Fetzer, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Oh, Jeremy, I'm delighted. That's where we both belong. I mean, it, it's got down to hand-to-hand -hand combat. <laughs> on, a, on a battlefield, where do you find yourself? <laughs> well, I'm a champion of truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. I'm very uncompromising. I despise liars, phonies, fakes, fraud. So, you know, it's, it's a relentless effort. It's not quite Sisyphean, but it has those aspects because the number of liars, phonies, and frauds is legion, and those who are seeking to combat with the truth are few. Um, I, I'm doing this out of respect because people keep moaning, but apparently drinking a whiskey while I'm talking to my guest is considered disrespectful. Not to me. <laughs> I, may only, I, I may have ice water. I'd prefer gin and tonic, but I'm glad for you to indulge in bourbon, whatever. So that's not a problem. I'm glad that you said bourbon because <clears throat> Jack Daniels claims to be um, what a Tennessee whiskey, but there's no such thing as a Tennessee whiskey. Right. It's a it's a brand. It's a marketing thing, right? It's a, that's a good <laughs> bourbon. I'll tell you, if you've never tried it, you got to have bullet bourbon. It's the best bourbon I ever had. It is bullet. the smoothest bullet. Bullet. B-U-L-L-E-T. You will be astonished. If you thought all bourbons were like, man, I mean, tell you, bullet bourbon may be the best I've ever had. I'm going to look out for that. But <clears throat> I'm also going to look out for um, the responses to this particular conversation because I am of the opinion that JFK and his assassination is probably one of the most significant events of the 20th century. Would you agree with me? Oh, yes. 100%. Yes. Why? Well, the ramification have been enormous, you know. Most of those who wanted Jack out were for policy differences with Lyndon Johnson, but get this. Jack was threatening to shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces. He had refused to invade Cuba in spite of the Joint Chief's unanimous recommendation. He'd gone ahead and signed an above-ground test ban treaty with the Soviet Union despite their unanimous opposition. He was pulling all of our forces out of Vietnam by the end of 1964. And the chiefs thought he was an obstacle to the fight against international godless communism. They were wrong, but they were limited by their own failure to understand the world in a comprehensive way, as did JFK. We had the anti-Castro Cubans who wanted retaliation. They wanted revenge because they felt they'd been betrayed by him at the Bay of Pigs. It was false. But it was convenient for the agency to allow them to entertain that false belief. The mob, which may have thought it had an agreement with their father to run interference in Chicago to make sure Illinois went for Jack and therefore the election, but it wasn't with Bobby and Jack. And in fact, when he appointed Bobby attorney general, he was bringing about more indictments, arrests, convictions than ever before in history, even J. Edgar had been inhibited from acknowledging the existence of organized crime because just as Edgar had sex dossiers on all the members of Congress, they'd drop by a senator's office and they'd 
share a revealing photograph. And Senator, we just want you to know that uh, we're going to make sure this doesn't fall into the wrong hands. And as they're departing, they'd say, and please do remember us at appropriations time. The mob had a dossier on Edgar in compromising position with his close friend and ally, uh, uh, Tolson, Clyde Tolson. I mean, they had these photographs. They had Edgar by the short hairs. Yeah, the, the, the Texas oilmen were worried because Jack was threatening to cut the oil depletion allowance, which is a massive tax write-off on the specious grounds that oil was a finite resource, and by pumping it out of the ground, they were putting themselves out of business. The Eastern establishment surrounding the Fed was very upset because Jack was circumventing, going to even abolish the Fed on the grounds that it was absurd for the United States to be paying interest on printing the currency of the United States, which could be done just as well by the United States Treasury at no interest at all, and he'd done so by publishing hundreds of millions of United States notes, which had a red embossed in print, said United States note instead of green Federal Reserve, and Israel. He was at loggerheads with David Ben-Gurion, who was a founder of Israel in its first PM, who wanted Israel to develop nuclear weapons, which Jack opposed on the ground that it would lead to a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. Ben-Gurion resigned in exasperation, but after designating the Mossad to participate to help in the assassination. And it, it turns out, Jeremy, that each of those groups was putting up their own assassin. There wasn't, not only was there not one lone assassin, there were actually turned out to have been eight different shooters, and each of them appears to have come from one of the groups sponsoring the assassination we had an anti-Castro-Cuban, we had an Air Force, a military guy, we had a CIA shooter, we had Lyndon Johnson, personal hitman, we had a Dallas deputy sheriff, we had a Dallas cop tied to the CIA, we had an Israeli shooter. The, the one I, there's only one we haven't identified where I can give you name, rank, and serial number of six, where they were located, the shots they took on their effect. Ole Domegaard has identified a seventh, with which I agree, he was the Israeli teacher, uh, shooter out of Toronto, where the Bronfman family runs uh, uh, ops there. And the one I'm not identified is that uh, lone tree on the grassy knoll opposite, that lower knoll, the south knoll as it's called, opposite the grassy knoll from which many of the shots were fired, who may have been the Fed. Maybe he was a Fed shooter. They, you, looking at it, you'd think there wasn't even any place for a gunman to be located, but in fact, I have seen photographs in the possession of two different experts of the same gunman, but they're different photographs holding his rifle. So there's no doubt about his presence there. So James, okay, so I mean, this is a fairly, this is a fairly complex conversation. So where do we start? Well, to understand, uh, uh, let me make two key points. Uh, number one, to understand the assassination, you have to separate the sponsors, the individuals and groups who might have been enumerating, who wanted Jack out, principally for reasons of policy, to get Lyndon in. You have the mechanics on the ground. I've identified or told you there were eight different shooters, but they had supervisors who included Edward Lansdale, who is an Air Force general responsible for assassinations around the world, but especially in Vietnam, where he ran the Operation Phoenix. And his supervisor on the ground was George Herbert Walker Bush. We're told that he was the first civilian to be appointed to the CIA, but that's nonsense. The whole Bay of Pigs operation was uh, 
codenamed Operation Zapata. That was the name of the Bush family oil drinking company. I believe if it had been successful, Zapata would have had concessions to drill all over the Caribbean basin. Two of the ships were rechristened just before the invasion. One was renamed Houston, the other was renamed Barbara. That's what he did as a pilot in World War II. He named his plane after his wife, Barbara. He was actually arrested coming out of the, the Daltex building and was uh, uh, questioned briefly and then released. But we have a deputy sheriff who recorded what took place. He identified himself as a Houston oil man, an independent Houston oil man, which was his cover story. But when there was a, a, a briefing of for a report about what had happened at the Bay of Pigs, he was copied because he'd actually been in charge of running the show. Okay, so then... And, and that... then but then, Jeremy, I forget. Mm. Let me not leave out the facilitators. These were the individuals who were crucial in between the sponsors and the mechanics to make sure it all happened. And those were... Lyndon Baines Johnson, who had acceded to the presidency upon the assassination, and J. Edgar Hoover, his close friend and ally. They were even neighbors. Edgar was a godfather to one of Lyndon's daughters, and they both despised the Kennedys and wanted to get them out. So that Lyndon was uh, the guy who was in the position to guarantee that no one would ever be punished. When there were multiple independent investigations bringing up, some of which were actually making progress, even in Texas, he cut them all off by creating the Warren Commission, preempting all the other investigations, and then assigned the investigative responsibility solely to the FBI. So the FBI had the opportunity to clean, tidy up the evidence, filter it out, replace a weapon that allegedly had been found in the book depository with one from the Daltex and had actually been used to fire three shots, stuff like that. When they moved it all from, from Dallas to Washington, Hoover did a house cleaning on the evidence to make sure nothing that they didn't want to be presented would turn up. Okay, so James, take me through the chronology then. Well, yeah, i got to go back to the Los Angeles in 1960. This is a the Democratic National Convention to determine their candidate for president where JFK beat out LBJ. Now, Jack invited Stuart Symington, who was a senator from Missouri, to be his running mate, but he gave him overnight to think about it. Meanwhile, Bobby went by the Johnson suite to make a pro forma offer of him running for president. I mean, this is a symbolic gesture. It's very common in these political campaigns. And never expecting Lyndon would have the least interest, he was dumbfounded when Johnson jumped on it. Not only, but he threatened to expose, if he were not on the ticket, that JFK suffered from Addison's disease, which meant he wasn't going to live a long, healthy life, that he, among his dalliances, and Jack had a lot of pretty casual sexual affairs, Angie Dickinson, for example, reported that her, her romance with JFK was the greatest 15 seconds of her life, <laughs> that among the dalliances had been a beautiful woman who was a spy for East Germany, which he'd learned from Edgar, and that if he were not on the ticket, then in his position as a majority leader, and Lyndon was the master of the Senate, I mean... Mitch McConnell is small potatoes compared to the authority that Lyndon Johnson wielded in the United States Senate at the time. 
that any legislative proposal set down from the White House would be dead on arrival, that he'd bottle them up. So Bobby and Jack felt themselves boxed in, and they were. I mean, Lyndon had been very shrewd in the way he set this up so that they had to accede to Johnson's demands. Well, when one of his wealthy supporters learned of this, he was outraged. He burst into the Johnson suite cursing and swearing because now LBJ was going to help JFK become president. Bobby Baker took him into a bedroom and told him what they had in mind. He came out all smiles, saying he thought that was an excellent plan, where Bobby Baker would later declare in public that JFK would not live out his first term and that he would die a violent death. In the course of events, in the course of events, Lyndon would send his chief administrative assistant, Cliff Carter, down to Dallas to make sure all the arrangements were in place for the assassination. That's the bare bones thumbnail sketch of what happened. Okay, so what happened next? Well, of course, Lyndon was doing all this hobnobbing to go over the White House, spent a lot of time with the Secret Service. Some of them were disenchanted with Jack uh, because he was having these dalliances. They'd even fly Marilyn in for, you know, rendezvous at the White House. Yeah, Madeline she would Monroe. talk about it later. I mean, you know, it was rather fascinating. Uh, uh, but he would also work on politically, you know. Uh, the oldest was a guy named William Greer, who was an Irish Protestant who resented Jack Kennedy as a Catholic. And Greer turned out to be the driver of the presidential limousine, who would be a, a key player. Actually, once the limousine had turned off of Maine onto Houston and then back onto Elm Street, which was in violation of Secret Service protocol. You're never supposed to make more than a 90-degree turn, driving abnormally slowly, because you're also never supposed to have the presidential limousine go less than 30 miles an hour. He was only got about 10 or 11. And then, after Jack had been hit twice, once in the back, five and a half inches below the collar, just to the right of the spinal column by a shallow shot that only went in about as far as the second knuckle on your little finger, and subsequently in the throat by a shot that passed through the windshield. That shot, by the way, in the back was fired from the top of the county records building by Dallas Deputy Sheriff by the name of Harry Weatherford, using a 30 6 to implant a smaller man liquor carcano bullet using a plastic collar known as a sabot, which actually passed through the upholstery en route to its target. Jack was wearing this corset-like, it was a back brace, because he'd injured his back in World War II, you know, PT-109 and all that, saving a fellow soul. I mean, he really was a war hero, the real thing. So it only went in very shallow. But the shot to the throat had been fired through the windshield from inside the triple underpass by an Air Force expert by the name of Jack Lawrence. From from behind. He was using a weapon from from in front. He was was hit in the throat from in front by inside the triple underpass as the limousine was approaching the triple underpass where three roadways came together. And, And... it was a, a, an experimental weapon. Remington made only a small number, but one of them was in the possession of General Curtis LeMay, who was very right and opposed to Jack. And it appears he, Curtis LeMay directly gave Jack Lawrence the weapon to use so Jack Lawrence would know that what he was doing, it was in accordance with a chain of command, you know, that here mm-hmm. the 
had an Air Force chief of staff who directed him to participate. They were telling the participants, or some at least, that JFK was a communist. In fact, H.L. Hunt, who was the richest man in Texas, maybe even in the world at the time, had put up a handbill the day before. JFK wanted for treason with a mugshot, profiles, for inside, just listing all the reasons where Madeleine Duncan Brown, who was a young advertising executive who began an affair with Lyndon in 1948, bore him a son, Stephen, in 1950, ran into him outside the bank building in the parking lot where he had an office and she worked. And H.L. showed her this, and and she said, why, H.L., you can't do that. And he says, why, sure I can. I'm the richest man in the world. I can do anything I want. These handbills were all over Texas, Jeremy, all over Dallas. Would you believe the Secret Service, you know, keeps a record of any potential threat to the president? According to the Secret Service, there wasn't a threat to the president within 50 miles at Dallas. I mean, this is just complete nonsense. It's another indication where I have 15 of Secret Service complicity in setting a man up for the hit. So, you know... He, he, he was brought in, he was shot in the back by that, from the top. Roy Kellerman, who was the agent in charge of the presidential limousine, who was sitting in the passenger seat, said that Jack called out, I'm hit. And he called out, literally, I'm hit. But the shot that hit him in the throat was fired from inside the triple underpass, went through the windshield, hit him in the throat. It appears to have fragmented, and part went upward and part went down into his lung. And there was bruising in the lung, but not the uh, found later during the Bethesda autopsy, but not the bullet fragment because the body had been taken to Walter Reed in route before it was taken over to Bethesda to make sure these different bullet fragments didn't turn up because the shooters were using their own preferred caliber. And, and the other went upward and appears to have severed this very tough membrane that covers a cerebellum, which is a compact part of the brain at the base. Robert B. Livingston, M.D., was a world authority on the human brain and an expert on wound ballistics, having supervised an emergency medical hospital for the treatment of injured Japanese prisoners of war in Okinawans during the Battle of Okinawa, told me that had the tentorium not been ruptured, then even the near simultaneous impact of two shots to the head, and David Mantic who's both an MD and a PhD, who's a leading expert on the medical evidence in the world today, with whom I've been collaborating since 1992, believes there may have been a third shot to the head. But even the close proximity impact in time of the two shots to the head would not have called cerebellum to be ruptured unless a tentorium had already been severed. Well, we have physician after physician at Parkland Hospital reporting out of this Fist-sized blowout at the back of the head. There was both cerebellar and cerebral tissue, very different type. So Bob drew the conclusion obligatory when he reviewed the photographs and diagrams of a brain in the National Archives, which is virtually completely intact. So it's a totally intact cerebellum and only a bit minor damage to the the cerebral tissue, the so-called gray matter. which was an abnormally large brain, by the way, 1,500 grams, the average adult brain is only 1,350, and Jack had had half his brains blown out in Dealey Plaza, so he was obliged to conclude that the the brain shown in diagrams and photographs in the National Archives can't possibly be the brain of JFK. 
because you got the physician after physician at Parkland. I mean, six or eight who were well experienced with gunshots. Dallas may have been the the murder capital of the universe at the time, explaining that there was both cerebellar and cerebral tissue extruding from the wound, which would have been a physiological impossibility by Bob's account, unless a tentorium had been ruptured. And the only opportunity for that to have happened was when the bullet hit him in the throat and fragmented. Now, this is fascinating. But what, what I have done, Jeremy, again and again, is to bring together the best experts in this case, in the world, to sort out what really happened. Because I know my own limitations. I know what I don't know, and I'm not going to fake it. I'm going to bring in experts who know more than I about these areas. For example, Mantic is not only a PhD in physics from Wisconsin. He's an MD from Michigan and board certified in radiation oncology, which is a treatment of cancer using X-ray therapy. So he's an expert in the interpretation of X-rays. Well. When he and I first linked up, he was about to enter the National Archives to study the autopsy materials with the permission of the Kennedy family through their attorney, who, who was uh, a professor emeritus at the Yale School of Law, Burke Marshall. And he studied the autopsy x-rays, and he told me before he went in, he thought he'd find evidence that of a second shot to the head, and indeed he did, because there's this distribution of metallic particles that, in accordance with the laws of physics, the larger particles traveling further from a shot that entered the right temple, but also that all the autopsy x-rays had been altered because they there was this fist-sized blowout to the back of the head reported by all the Parkland physicians that's not present in the x-ray. So, he went in, and because he was extremely myopic at the time, now normally that would be a, a defect, mm. but he was taking all these minute measurements, doing a technique from physics known as optical densitometry, that by measuring the amount of light that passes through the X-ray, you can calculate the relative density of the objects whose exposure to radiation created the image, and he determined by hundreds of minute measurements an area called area P for patch, that this this image had been created by material far too dense to be natural, to be ordinary, so that unless the whole back of Jack's head was nothing but solid bone, unless JFK was a bonehead, in other words, this was an artificial patch, either by using material that was too dense to be human bone or by taping it off and using excessive exposure to light to create the impression, and where I would later, in studying the uh, home movies of the assassination, the most famous of which, although there are eight, eight different films that show part, different parts of the scenario in Dealey Plaza, the most famous of which is the Zapruder, it occurred to me that we knew already the film had undergone massive editing and revision, that they spent so much time around frame 313 where they actually merged two different shots. I'll explain how this happened. That they spent a lot of time blacking out the blowout at the back of the head in frames around 313, 14, 15, 16, 17, that maybe they'd overlook that later on in the film, you might actually be able to see the blowout. And I discovered in frame 374, where Jackie's now climbing out on the back of the truck. And some have speculated that she was 
trying to get away from the shooter. No, no, no. She was going after a big chunk of Jack's skull and brains that was sitting on the trunk from the blowout, which she held in her hands all the way to Parkland, by the way. I mean, this is the most poignant moment in the history of the assassination. Sorry, say after that again. They Sorry, say that again. What was Jackie doing? She was climbing out on the trunk for a big chunk of Jack's skull and brains. That's incredible. She so, she, so she wasn't trying to get she, away from the shooters? No, she was going after this chunk of Jack's skull and brains, which she held in her hand until they got to Parkland and they pried Jack's moribund body. I mean, look, the mortician who prepared him for funeral observed that there was no discoloration to the face, which means he died instantly. And there are few of us who could survive having half our brains blown out. That he died instantly, so he's actually already dead. When they pried his body out of her arms and she composed herself, she entered tra trauma room number one, turned to the anesthesiologist, Pepper Jenkins, extended her hand and asked, will this help? So Jackie knew a lot about theater, culture, literature. She didn't know anything about ballistics, brain injuries, you know, she, neurosurgery. And, and she didn't know, it, it's not like... She didn't know anything Go about ahead. what was what was happening now at this moment. She had no idea. Well, here, here's how it went down. Uh, uh, after those two shots I've already described, the shot to the bag and the shot uh, uh, to the to the throat, which were the first two, because he was still alive, there was a fellow standing there with an umbrella pumping it up and down. That was a single to all the shooters. They, he was visible to every one of the shooting locations. There was one in the Daltex County Records building, one in the book depository, another behind the picket fence, one inside the triple underpass, and one on the south. He was visible. To, as long as he's pumping, that means the target is still alive, keep shooting. Well, there was another figure with him described as a Cuban, who reaches out with his fist gesture, which meant stop. And, and Greer pulled the limousine to the left in a halt so abruptly that all the passengers, and you had the governor, Connolly and his wife, Nellie, and Jack and Jackie, were thrown forward. You know, as it wasn't subtle, very abrupt. And then while it was stationary, you see, it's hard to hit a moving target, even with expert shooters. And these were some of the best marksmen in the world. Then while he's stationary, he, he's hit in the back of the head by a shot fired from the Daltex. Because he's wearing that corset, he can't dodge or duck. He just slumps forward. Jackie eases him back up. She's looking him right in the face when he's hit the right temple by that bullet that blows his brains out the back of his head. And he slumps to the left. This is when Jackie gets up and goes after that chunk of his skull and brains. Now... They edit it so massively, they merge these two shots. So instead of seeing him slump forward, there's only one shot from 312 to 313, one frame where he's actually got forward motion. And they took out all the rest. And they try to make it look as though this was the hit. But because of the way they edited it, they took out so many frames, you get a violent back and to the left motion in the extant version of the film, which leads everyone to conclude that he was shot from the right front. Well, he was shot from the right front, but it didn't go down the way it's portrayed because he he previously, now he'd been 
hit had those two non-fatal shots or what appear to have been non-fatal shots in the back of the throat. But he'd already been hit in the back of the head and slumped forward. Jackie teased him up, looking at him right in the face when he's hit the right temple, blowing his brains out. And a big chunk of his skull, a, a triangular chunk known as the Harper fragment. That's like about three by three by three. I mean, a triangular. It would be found on the grass the next day. But I think it was when they, when they stopped the limousine, Jeremy, a motorcycle patrolman, Bobby Hargis, to the left rear, who... When Jack was shot, was hit so hard by the debris, he thought he himself had been shot. He parked his bike and ran between the two limos, which would have been impossible had they been in motion, up to the grassy mole when which he believed the shot had been fired. Officer Douglas Jackson on the other side, and there were only two motorcycle escort officers on either side. The motor the escort had been cut down and ordered to not ride ahead of the rear wheels, which one of the officers described as the damnedest formation he'd ever seen, because they didn't want the motorcycle men to interfere with the line of sight for the various shooters. Douglas Jackson actually motored his bike up on the grassy knoll until it fell over and then proceeded on foot. Meanwhile, five Secret Service agents got out of the Secret Service Cadillac, which was colloquially known as the Queen Mary, and surrounded the presidential limousine. And one of them took a chunk of skull from a little boy and threw it in the back seat. I believe that was a harbor fragment. And then they were going to misplace where the fatal shots had been fired. So they came back and planted the, the chunk of skull, the harbor fragment, further down in the grass. So when a medical student by the name of Billy Harper found it the following day and took it to, uh, he had an uncle at the Methodist Hospital, and they took photographs and identified it as parietal occipital bone from the back of the head, uh, they, they would claim it had been an effect of a shot from behind. And there's all this stuff. They were editing the film to my, try and make it look as though there were only three shots fired that all, they'd all been above and behind. In fact... The Secret Service and the, and the FBI both concluded that day, 22 November 1963, there had been three shots only with three hits. That Jack had been hit in the back, where he actually was hit in the back, five and a half inches below the collar, just to the right of the spinal column. That Connolly had been hit in the back. Connolly was hit in the back, and it was by a separate shot. And then Jack had been hit in the back of the head, killing him, that was the official conclusion of the FBI and the Secret Service, who, of course, were complicit in the plot. I mean, this is to distort completely the actual sequence because, get this, Jeremy, two shots were widely broadcast over radio and television that very afternoon. And the one was that entry that shot to the throat, which was a small, clean puncture wound of entry. Uh, Dr. Uh, Malcolm Perry, who is a very skilled surgeon, had performed a simple tracheostomy incision right through this clean puncture wound. And during a press conference that was held at 1.30, called the Parkland Press Conference, after the president's death had been announced at 1 o'clock by the acting press secretary, Malcolm Kilduff, who said it was a simple matter of a bullet right through the head while pointing to his right temple. A simple matter of a bullet right through the head while pointing to his right temple. Malcolm Perry described three different times this wound is a wound of entry, that the bullet was coming at him, that it was a wound of entry. 
And yet that information was never given to the Warren Commission. They never provided a transcript because a right by itself, it contradicts the official story of three and only three shots being fired from above and behind. And the other shot that was widely reported that day, and, and by the way, we still have access to archive shows that were broadcast that day. So you can go online and you can find NBC, see it now. And you have one of the most famous newsmen of his time, Chet Huntley with a couple others who are reporting this in real time as the information is coming in. The other shot is a bullet that entered the right temple and blew his brains out the back of his head, which was reported on television and radio that afternoon and attributed to Admiral George Berkeley, who is a president's personal physician. So everyone who was glued to their television, and Jeremy, this was the event, that made television indispensable in every home in the United States. Everyone who's good to their TV knew about two hits on JFK, the shot to the throat and the shot that entered the right temple, both of which had been fired from in front. So that later on in the evening, as a story starting to come in that the FBI and the Secret Service had concluded there were only three shots fired from above and behind, Frank McGee, who was nobody's fool, was on the air and says, this is incongruous. How can a man have been shot from in front, from behind? So that when the Warren Commission about a year later would release its report claiming there were only three shots fired from above and behind the American people, anyone who remembered even dimly what they'd seen on television that day knew something was wrong. Now, if, if you put together all those shots, because Jack was hit in the back, he was hit in the back of the head, and then he was hit in the throat, and he was hit in the right temple. You got four of what may have been the five hits on Jack from 10 or 12 shots being fired from eight different locations. That was the, the effect of all those shots being fired. And I, I can tell you more about the ones that missed and all that, but sure. this is so crucial. Yeah. Well, just quickly, how many shots actually hit him? He was hit by four or possibly five out of okay. 10 or 12. Okay, so, so about 50 to 60% of the shots fired at him hit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, there's, David believes there was this third shot that hit nearly simultaneous also near the right temple from the side, and that that was the frangible bullet that distributed the, uh, the uh, particles of lead that he, could, he found in the x-rays when he was at the National Archives. So it may be five out of 12, because look, each of the shooters got at least one shot. The shooter on the top of the county record building shot a, another that missed, but the, the Dow Tech shooter fired three times with two misses and one hit. He was using a Mannlicher Carcano to create the, acoustic, the acoustical impression of only three shots having been fired. But because mm. the weapon is so unreliable, it was known. It's an obscure World War II Italian-made carbine. <laughs> it, it, it was known as the humanitarian weapon, Jeremy, for never, never harming anyone on purpose. Okay. So of the three shots fired from the Dow Techs, two were misses. One one hit a distant curbing and injured a bystander by the name of James Tagg. And a fleck of concrete actually cut his cheek. So he actually had blood from this wound. Uh, the second shot missed and hit the chrome strip over the limousine where you have this indentation that fits 
the the bullet of a man like our Carcano perfectly, and then the third, the back of the head where he slumped forward. So uh, when they when they when they when they when they eventually surfaced that one of the shots had missed because here was James Tag and he had the blood and all this thing. That's when they had to become a little too clever. By now, since they were committed, only three shots being fired. If one was a miss, now they had to count for all the wounds on the basis of only two bullets. So they had to change the whole scenario. Instead of, you know, five and a half inches below the collar to the right, and it, which they were already misdescribing as his uppermost back, they, they relocated it to the base of the back of the neck. And now they claim the bullet passed through his neck without hitting any bony structures, which turns out to be anatomically impossible. And came out the front. So now that the, that shot to the throat now became an exit wound and went on to hit Connolly in the back. See, Unreal. now you got all this d damage doing by one bullet that is a so-called magic bullet. And, and listen to this, Jeremy. The bullet they claim that did all this damage is virtually pristine. Is as some slight longitudinal distortion. It's missing only a tiny, tiny fragment of metal. And th th therefore, when, when John Connolly's physician was asked about this bullet, he said it was most unlikely that could have done all the damage because he'd already removed more lead from John Connolly than was missing from that bullet. And, and, and here's something staggering. To me, it's just staggering. O Oliver Stone... Uh, this past year did a JFK Revisited, where he was misled by the fellow he used as his advisor, a guy named Jim Eugenio, just as he had been misled by Robert Grodin, who had advised him on the making of the original JFK, which in spite of its falls, is still the most accurate, complete, and detailed presentation of what actually happened in Dealey Plaza ever presented to the American people through the mass media. In this JFK Revisited, it's all about the magic bullet. But but while they include a couple of real experts, they include David Mantic, MD, PhD, the leading medical expert, as one of the interviewees. They include Doug Horn, who is a senior analyst for military records for the Assassination Records Review Board, who discovered the exact way in which the film had been substituted at the National Photographic Interpretation Center, where the original was taken there on Saturday when they had one crew working and a second crew was working Sunday when the revised version was brought down from Rochester. So you had the original brought in from Dallas. It was an already split film. The camera, Jeremy, uses a 16 millimeter strip of film, but it shoots down one side and then you take it out, flip it over and it shoots the other side. So you got an A and a B roll. And each, each side has about 500 frames. So if you split it, and, and then splice it together, you could get a total of around a thousand frames. That's actually what the original footage would have shown about a thousand frames. But they did so much editing, they removed more frames over 500, so that what we have now, 487, is less than half of what was in the original. They, they took out a hundred frames, turning from Houston on down because Greer misjudged and thought the frontage road right in front of the book depository was Elm Street and swung out too widely, nearly hit a concrete abutment. He had to pause to get a presidential limousine back in line. I think they believe that would have shaken the confidence of the American people in the Secret Service 
so they just cut it out. So if you watch the current version, you see the, the motorcade's coming up on Houston, and boom, all of a sudden, there it is in front of the Stemmons Freeway sign. So they took out 100 frames there, and then obviously they couldn't leave in the limo stop. So they, the limo stop took around 20 seconds. I used to think originally it was six or eight. No, it had to be at least 20, given all the activities I've described that took place. And at, you know, 18.4 frames per second, which I don't think is authentic. Actually, camera only had a 24 and a 48 setting, but when they eliminated so many frames, it wound up being 18.4. Call it 20. They, they removed, if you have 20 seconds times 20 frames, that's 400 frames. More they took out. So they would taken out more frames, 500 frames minimally, than they have left in the 487. But the, the, I mean, that's really a stunning story, the way they did it. So they brought the, the original film, which was developed in Dallas at Kodak, where they claimed to have had only three prints made, but there's a missing number. There was a fourth. The very first one, the very first copy appears, my inference, to have been sold to H.L. Hunt for $100,000. He wanted a memento. So uh, officially, there was only an original and three copies, one of which was sent back to the National Photographic Interpretation Center in Washington, D.C., where they process satellite imagery, Jeffrey. Satellite imagery is taken on these little micro docks where they're extremely precise with these very powerful telescopic lenses. And what they do at the NPIC is they blow up the frame so you can study what's there. Well, that's what they did with the film, the eight millimeter film. They didn't have an eight millimeter projector. So they had to go out and have a shop owner open his store so they could buy an eight millimeter projector so they could see what they had there. And then they prepared briefing boards of the various shots that because it was the original would have been quite accurate. But when they, so they had an eight millimeter already split film brought in from Dallas on Saturday. They played it with an eight millimeter projector. They created a briefing board. The following day, a secret service agent who called himself William Smith, how original is that? Brought a 16 millimeter unsplit film from Rochester where the secret service had a, where the CIA had a secret photo lab known as Hawkeye Works, where David Lifton was the first to realize what had happened here, and they made the substitution. Uh, now, notice how glaring are the physical differences. These can't be the same film, because what they did was to, at the CIA Hawkeye Works, they blew up the frames, they did actual hand painting of the blood at the back of the head, and then they shrunk them back down. And then they reshot the sequence to create the excellent version of film so that we have a group of film restoration experts in Hollywood who have been looking at a very high quality version they obtained from the National Archives. And they're just dumbfounded at the amateurish way in which they blacked out the blowout to the back of the head. But they were under severe time constraints and they did a whole lot of editing. They used optical printing. They added special effects. They painted in the blood and the gore in frame 313, which dissipates far too fast to have been real. I mean, we know a whole lot about everything that was done here. I mean, virtually, I'd say we know 95% of what actually happened on 22 November 1963. James, now we've been speaking for quite a while, and you haven't once 
mentioned the elephant in the room, Lee Harvey Oswald? Well, that's because Lee was a good guy. He was actually working for the government. His favorite show when he was growing up was uh, I Led Three Lives by Herbert Philbrick. It was supposed to be an undercover FBI and all this other stuff. Oswald actually was leading something like I Led Three Lives. He, in, during his recruit training in San Diego, where I myself would serve as a series commander with 15 DIs and 300 recruits in my command, going through the training cycle, which then was 11 weeks in duration, uh, 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 he was recruited by the Office of Naval Intelligence to do undercover work for ONI. He appears to have been sent to Monterey to study Russian language after he was stationed at Tsugi in Japan, which was the most secure base in the American military. It was the source of the overflights across the Soviet Union. Now, the Soviets knew these flights were taking place, but they did not know the altitude at which the plane was flying and were unable to shoot it down. Lee Oswald conducted a pseudo-defection to the Soviet Union at the behest of the CIA. He had been a radar operator at Atsugi, so he knew the altitude of the U-2. He was intended to give them that information. He renounced his citizenship on a Sunday when the embassy was closed. It had no legal effect. There was to be a summit meeting between Nikita Khrushchev and Dwight D. Eisenhower that was intended to reduce world tensions. But due to a series of events, Khrushchev accused the United States of spying on Russia. And Eisenhower denied it. And then Khrushchev brought out the pilot, Francis Gary Power, who hadn't taken his cyanide cabinet in the U-2, which they'd shot down parts of the U-2. It appears not only were they counting on Lee to give the Soviets the information on the altitude, but uh, according to L. Fletcher Prouty, who actually was Lansdale's subordinate at the Pentagon, who was sent down to South Africa, South Pole, to get him out of the way, because uh, he was a righteous dude. He would never have stood for participating in an assassination of the President of the United States. He would have taken one look at the sequence of vehicles and the motorcade and understood it was a setup, because they put the presidential limousine out front when it should have been in the middle. It should have been preceded by the mayor, the vice president, the lower-ranking dignitaries, after all, you cheer for the mayor, then the vice president. When the president, after Jack and Jackie are, have come by, why would you stick around to see the vice president or the mayor? I mean, you came to see Jack and Jackie. Not only that, Jeremy, but all the limousines were of different makes, models, and colors. Now, presidential limousines are uniformly black, typically Cadillac limousines. They're all black Cadillac limousines. But they use, in this case... Now, a local car dealership put up vehicles of different make, model, and color so everyone would know where everyone was in the motorcade. And the Jack Lawrence, who fired that shot from inside the triple underpass, went to work for the same automobile dealership just days before the assassination and after, showed up all muddy and nauseating because he'd made his escape through a series of tunnels beneath Dealey Plaza back to the motorcade, and, you know, vomiting because of what he'd been involved in doing in assassinating JFK. So the fact of the matter is, 
He was working for the U.S. He even married the, the, the very fatching niece of a KGB colonel. But when he returned to the United States, he was met by a CIA asset. They gave him money to relocate. Lee went to New Orleans, where they're going to sheep dip him. They were going to give him a new persona as an anti, as a pro-Castro communist sympathizer. Uh, they sent Marina to a, near Dallas at the home of, of Ruth Payne and her husband, both of whom were tied in with the CIA, so they could manipulate the situation, even claim that Lee had a man like a Carcano he'd never owned, was had been stored in the garage. And, and she was instrumental in getting Lee a job at the book depository just weeks before the motorcade. Now, meanwhile, while he's in New Orleans, he he's active in an area that's dominated by the U.S. intelligence services. Um, ONI has their office, FBI is an office. He's working for a guy, Bannister, is a former FBI agent, still working for the FBI. He, he's doing all these activities, including leafleting for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and in a, a very public altercation that was set up because they had the TV crew there in advance, Jeremy, so they could record it. When he got in an altercation with some who were anti-Castro, because the Fair Play for Cuba committee meant Cuba needs to be dealt with fairly, and that the blockade, you know, sanctions on Cuba were all bad and improper, clearly portraying himself as a pro-communist sympathizer. And he got into a fist fight with one of the real anti-Castro Cubans, which was not filmed, but then he was put on television so he could talk about his uh, communist Marxist sympathies. In fact, this is where he talks about, well, he's a Marxist, but not a communist. He, you know, he believes in Marx's theory of history and blah, blah, and, you know, working class and all that being the economic factors, being the determinants of the historical events. But the point is they're setting him up so that when Dallas goes down, he's going to be their first choice to be the patsy. Now, what they did not anticipate is that Lee apparently wasn't very knowledgeable about the impending visit of the president. And when it turned out everyone was rushing out of the building, he went out to see what in the world was going on. And when he got out there, he actually extended himself to see what was going on so that Lee Oswald was in the doorway of the Texas School Book Depository as a JFK motorcade passed by which means not only can he have not been the lone demented gunman, he cannot have been one of the eight shooters either. You know, as the guy was completely innocent of, of what, whether he was seeking to, you know, infiltrate the assassination to seek to abort it, that's entirely possible. But everything he said during his interrogation that he was a patsy, he was shown one of the backyard photographs that were used to frame him. He said that was someone else's body with his face pasted on, that he knew something about photography. He'd be able to prove it by and by. Well, he didn't live to prove it, but he was absolutely spot on. Where have we been able to prove it? Uh, Ralph Sin Kay, who's the founder of the Oswald Innocence Campaign, which you can find on, online, of which I was the very first... Uh, director, executive director, Ralph Sinkay, uh, or chairman of the board, uh, 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 Ralph Sinkay 
had pointed out to me when I looked at a photograph of the figures here in this area of the book depository, which was captured in a very famous photograph by the AP photographer James Ike Alchins, that there's a figure whose face has been completely obfuscated. I figure that must have been Lee. And, and Ralph corrected me and said, no, no, here he is, the guy standing out. He's the right height, the weight, the build, the shirt, the T-shirt. And indeed, he was the same height, weight, build, shirt, and T-shirt as Lee Oswald when he was arrested at the Texas Theater within a, an hour of the uh, assassination taking place. I mean, it was just staggering. In fact, they actually had an arrest warrant for Lee as having assassinated JFK and wounded Governor Connolly and also killed Officer J.D. Tibbet. They actually had the arrest warrant written out that way before he was even arrested. I think they may have added the Tibbet part, but in the original arrest report, you can see he said, this man shot and killed John F. Kennedy and wounded Governor Connolly. How can they have that in an arrest report when there's been no investigation? I mean, it's just one of the ways in which they they boggled it, but they were able to smooth it over by using the Warren Commission as a vehicle to pacify the American public. But many have remained concerns at some time. The, the polling of those who doubt that Lee Oswald was a lone gunman has been as high as 85%, Jeremy. Gee. Now tell me something, James. Um, <clears throat> were there not witnesses on the day who could have spoken out and saying, no, there wasn't a lone gunman? Well, there were plenty of witnesses. There were a couple of hundred, uh, maybe 284, something like that. Stuart Gallinor has a wonderful book called uh, Cover Up, where he gives a list of all the witnesses, but you can find them in other places. You may find it, for example, in Josiah Thompson's book, Six Seconds in Dallas, where Josiah was uh, perhaps the first to do a publish of a study of the Zapruder film, but where... I'm dismayed to report that my research revealed that Josiah Thompson actually was a limited hangout. He was a cover-up guy. I, I was drawn to him because he had been a, a philosophy professor at Haverford. He'd been in the UDT. Well, I'd studied philosophy. I was to become a philosophy professor. And of course, I was in the Marine Corps. So I felt a certain affinity with Josiah Thompson. I'd been anchored out aboard the LPH, that's landing platform helicopter, it's like a carrier, but because helicopters take off and land vertically, you don't need that long, stable runway for fixed-wing aircraft, so it has a shallow hole in Kaohsiung Harbor, Formosa, or Taiwan. When JFK was hit, I was awakened by the officer of the deck, who was my executive officer of the mortar battery, of which I was at the time the fire direction officer, to tell me the president had been shot in Dallas at 3.30 in the morning, local time. And then he awakened me an hour later to say they caught the guy who did it. He was a communist. And I thought then that was pretty fast work, knowing now, of course, after all these decades of research later, exactly how they knew who to arrest for a crime he didn't commit. I mean, you know, it's staggering. So Lee was an innocent. Among the ways, they appear to have used the Dallas police to frame Oswald, and they were pretty sloppy about it. But they, they did have a, a body double for the backyard photographs. I'm sure you've seen there were four of these backyard photographs, Lee holding the man liquor Carcano. He's got a pistol belt on with a revolver, and there's a story there. 
And he's holding two communist newspapers, a militant and the worker. Well, it turns out, and I discussed this with a colleague of mine on the Duluth campus of the University of Minnesota, who is an expert in communism. He said they had an antithetical communist ideology so that if members, you know, those who followed the workers' ideology encountered those who followed the militant, they'd have break out in fistfights and try to kill each other. So that it was very odd Lee would have these two newspapers, both of which were Marxist communists, but of conflicting ideologies. What Jack White perceived was that those newspapers have known dimensions. So you'd use them as internal ruler to determine the height of the individuals holding it. So he'd laid them off from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And using that as a yardstick, he was only five foot six, too short to be Lee Oswald, whom we knew to be about 5'10". I mean, you know, his military ID and all that other records, you're about 5'10". That's pretty average height for an adult male in the United States. I was 5'10 and a half until I got older and my disc of my spine started compact. And I've lost at least an inch of height now that I'm nearly 82 years of old. So uh, we knew something was wrong. And what appears to have been the case is either they used someone who was too short to be Lee or they introduced the newspapers a little too large when they manufactured the photograph. And it was the latter. Uh, but we've even been able to identify the body double who stood in for him. It was the, uh, a Dallas police officer who was also on the grassy knoll. His name was Roscoe White. He had ties with the CIA. He fired with a pistol. It would have been a, a relatively simple shot, except that he would have hit Jackie and Jeremy. They were under strict instructions. Jackie must not be hit. In fact, they made a, a variation. They were visiting three different towns in, in, in Texas and everywhere. Jackie had been given yellow roses, but in Dallas, she was given red roses, a huge bouquet of red roses. So that not only enabled all the shooters to see exactly where Jack was beside the red roses, but to remind them, red for stop, don't hit Jackie. So Roscoe White pulled his shot deliberately, in other words, in order to avoid Jackie, missed Jack altogether, wound up in the grass where a, a, a Dallas police lieutenant picked it up, pocketed it, it's never been seen again. Now, the fact is, Roscoe White was a fairly hefty guy. He had a, a well-developed chest, far, far more muscular and robust than Lee Oswald. So Larry Rivera, who's been doing sensational work, Larry Rivera really did research on uh, interviews that were done with the four motorcycle escort officers and their supervisor, Stavis Ellis, by a fellow named Fred Newcomb, who interviewed them in 1971. But the interviews had been lost. Well, Larry recovered them and went through the tedious process of transcribing them and discovered all those events I was talking about where Bobby Hargis parked his bike, ran between the two limousines, Douglas Jackson motored up onto the grass until his bike fell over. The five of them got out, surrounded the presidential limousine. One took a chunk of skull and threw it back into the limousine. All that comes from the Fred Newcomb tape, said Larry Rivera has so painstakingly transcribed. So now Larry has a book called The Four Horsemen, meaning the four JFK escort officers at moonrockbooks.com. 
is a sensational book because Larry's been doing cutting-edge research. In addition, Larry has mastered the principles of photogrammetry, which is the application of mathematics to the study of photographs. And in relation to this issue, where Ralph Sinkay had made a compelling case that Lee was in the doorway, as described, height, weight, build, shirt, T-shirt, where I'd published maybe a dozen different articles about this at the time when I was a journalist for Veterans Today, Larry found photographs, uh, uh, both of Lee and of Billy Lovelady, whom the government insists was a man in the doorway, where Billy himself thought this was ridiculous, that they should be confused, because he was two to three inches shorter and 15 to 20 pounds or more heavier. So Larry got photos of both Billy and Lee and superimposed them on the facial features of the man in the doorway photograph. <coughs> and they fit Lee Oswald to a T exactly with Billy, the jaws wrong, the ears wrong, the nose wrong. It turns out that if you have photographs of a subject, two photographs taken from the same perspective, if you put the pupils of the eyes equidistant in the photographs, and if they're the same person, all the features fall into place. And if they're not, they don't. And they did for Lee, but they didn't for Billy. It turns out in this section of the photograph, you also got a guy known as Black Hole Man, because he's holding his hands up to protect his eyes from the sun, but his whole face is blacked out. Well, there's some features you can see dimly, and it turns out that was Billy Lovelady. He was there indeed. So the government during the war and hearings and all, it traded on an equivocation, calling Billy the man in the doorway, who is, of course, not Lee Oswald, ignoring the man in the doorway, the larger figure that's peering out, who was Lee Oswald. And Robert Groden was instrumental in promoting that falsehood because he was hired as a special consultant to the House Select Committee on, Invest on Assassination when it reinvestigated the death of JFK and MLK, Martin Luther King. And he was asked to, uh, to investigate the rumor that Lee had been in the doorway, and he came back with a false report claiming that the, the sleeves didn't match, that he'd done a pixel analysis of the sleeves and they didn't match. Well, ironically, Judith Baker, who claims, and I believe she's sincere about this, to have been Lee's uh, uh, girlfriend in New Orleans, did a, did a photo analysis that falsified Grodin's claim and showed, in fact, by a pixel analysis, it's the same. The shirt he was wearing when he was arrested had the same pixelation as the shirt on the man in the doorway. So what Larry did then was to find good photos of Roscoe White actually is in a bathing suit at a beach, as well as of Lee for the backyard photograph. And when you superimpose Roscoe's body on the backyard photograph, he fills out the silhouette exactly. You superimpose Lee, and he's far more diminutive. The sh he's, a, he's an atrophied version of the man in the photographs in the backyard. So they were used, just as Lee said, using Roscoe White as a body double, someone else's body with his pace pasted on. Lee had it exactly right. Jim Mars and I, in fact, co-authored an article about the man in the doorway where we concluded that it had been Roscoe White who'd been the stand-in this is before Larry had done his superimposition, because Roscoe had a very odd deformity on um, his right wrist, a bone that never healed properly. And you find that same deformity in the man in the backyard photographs. 
which were used to implicate Oswald in the mind of the public. One of these was put on the cover of Life magazine. So seemingly you have motive and means, because you got the new, the communist newspapers, that is motive, he's a communist, a means, a rifle with which he's supposed to have shot JFK, and the revolver with which he's supposed to have shot the police officer, J.D. Tippett. But there's an oddity there. Uh, R Robert Groden, in his book, The Search for Lee Harvey Oswald, has a wonderful discussion of the shooting of J.D. Tippett. And it turns out the first officer on the scene found Tippett dead. He'd been shot three times in the torso and once in the right temple, interestingly, where Jack had been shot. Three times in the torso, one of bullet of which had hit his badge. But there were four shell casings, four spent shell casings that had been ejected from automatics. And they, they were of two different makes, Remington Rand and Western. So you had two Western and two Remington Rand, Jeremy. So the officer initialed them. Now notice, they were from revolvers that automatically eject, uh, from handguns that automatically eject. A revolver does not automatically eject. Well, he had a revolver. And the size of a revolver shell casing is different than that from an automatic. So what they did was to make a substitution in the evidence. And now they replaced the four shells that have been injected from automatics, two of one brand, two of another, with four shell casings that were from a revolver. Now there were three of one and one of the other, and they didn't have the initials of the or original officer. A, a woman by the name of Aquila Clemens had witnessed the shooting of Tippett. And she said two men had done it and that neither of them resembled Oswald. And indeed, this was just part of a frame. Oswald did go back to his rooming house. He was supposed to meet up with his handler at the Texas Theater. He was taking a route that would got him there by a relatively short distance. For him to have shot Tippett, he had to go way out of his way. I mean, like five blocks or more out of his way. They even claimed they found a wallet, an Oswald wallet, and his jacket. But the fact is, Oswald had a wallet on him when he was arrested at the Texas Theater. How many of us carry two wallets? And the jacket was clearly a plant. Oswald did not shoot Tippett. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Now, the fact of the matter is, uh, he could not have been convicted in a properly conducted court of law, but they didn't want that to happen. This is not uh, unusual in the history of American jurisprudence. Uh, it, it, it was all sham to frame Oswald for a crime he didn't commit. But look, you see how brilliant it is to distract to a lone gunman when, in fact, you have a major conspiracy involving heavy hitters, big party, eight different shooters. I mean, I'm telling you, it was a masterpiece, and they mostly got away with it. And this is when, uh, by the way, brilliant students like Mark Lane with his book, Rush to Judgment, and Harold Weisberg with his cover-up series, were exposing flaws in the official Warren account. And indeed, in the second of his whitewash series, known as Photographic Whitewash, you have Harold Weisberg in the last few pages explain how the Warren Commission staff was have a terrible time concealing that Lee Oswald had been in the doorway at the time the motorcade went by, and therefore it could not have assassinated the president. So Harold Weisberg already, and that was a book published like in 1967, was explained Lee was in the doorway. Jim Garrison, who was a celebrated prosecutor, Clay Shaw, down in New Orleans, 
with this this event involving the fair trade for Cuba handouts and uh, the 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 tip that was captured uh, on video ran the trademark. It was right in front of the trademark, which was run by Clay Shaw. And this is all very well portrayed in Oliver Stone's film JFK. So, you know, the whole thing was a sham. By the way, let me add, moreover, uh, when Oliver did a sequel called JFK Revisited, and frankly, it's a waste of time. What I do a new JFK show usually once a week with Larry Rivera and with Gary King. And in the case of Oliver's new film, it was two hours. We divided into four 30-minute segments. So we played 30 minutes and discussed, played 30 minutes and discussed. In all their discussion of the uh, magic bullet, they do not, although they're interviewing David Mantic and they're interviewing Doug Horn, they don't ask David about his proof that the magic bullet trajectory was impossible where he took a patient with similar chest and neck dimensions and created a CAT scan and then plotted the official trajectory, Jeremy. And it turns out, as I mentioned before, cervical vertebrae intervene. So it's not anatomically possible that the bullet entered at the back and exited at the throat. It's not anatomically possible, which is why Arlen Specter when he questioned Malcolm Perry, who, remember, had performed that simple tracheostomy and three times described the wound as a wound of entry, who therefore knew it was a wound of entry, did not ask Malcolm Perry what he'd observed or what he'd inferred from his observations, but rather asked him a hypothetical question. He said, if we assume the bullet entered here at the base of the back of the neck, passed through the neck without hitting any bony structures, and then came out here at the front of the neck, at the throat, would that be consistent with describing the wound as a wound of exit? And, and Malcolm Perry acknowledged, yes, if, that, that if you made those assumptions, it would follow, but that he was not in the position to vouch for or verify the assumptions he'd been asked to make, which he knew were false. But this is just a way they perpetrated a fraud on the American people. They didn't even ask David during this Oliver Stone film, and I, I attribute this to Jim DiEugenio, whom I've long since concluded with a limited hangout guy, to talk about how he could prove the magic bullet theory wasn't even anatomically possible. And I would add, it turns out we actually know the origin of the magic bullet. Uh, Sam Kenny, who is one of the Secret Service agents on the detail in Dallas, found the bullet in the limousine either at Parkland when they were cleaning it up. An agent got a bucket of water and a sponge, and I believe that would have been Sam Kenny. He found the bullet, a whole intact bullet. He took it inside and left it on a stretcher. So there's nothing magic about the bullet. This appears to have been the bullet that hit Jack in the back that worked its way out because it was a shallow shot, didn't go anywhere just as far as a sucking knuckle on your little finger. So the whole thing was a complete sham. And what embarrass, it's embarrassing to me that Oliver Stone, after producing this magisterial film, JFK in 1961, comes back to do his reprise, and it's just pablum. It's pathetic. It's mediocre. I, I did myself a, a JFK special on the 18th. I knew he was going to release his film on the 22nd. So I wanted mine done on the 18th before I'd seen his film. And 
I laid it all out, what I've been telling you, Jeremy. It's all there with all the videos, all the documents, all the photographs, everything else. You can see Lee turn into, you know, the doorman turn into Lee Oswald. You compare the height, the weight. You can see the backyard photographs. You can see everything Larry found about the limo stop. You can see how they edited the film. You can see other proofs of the editing of the film. It's all there. So if you go to my bit shoot channel, Jim Fetzer, just do a search on JFK special and it'll flip you there, which I dedicated to Oliver Stone. I sent it to Oliver Stone by email before his film was released. And, and I'll just tell you, there's no comparison. Remember, I'm doing this based on collaborative research over you know decades of work. Began in 1992, published my first assassination science in 1998, then Murder in Dealey Plaza 2000, The Great Zapruder Film Book 2003. Then in 2017, I did a, a new volume with this great work from Larry confirming Lee was in the doorway about the limo stop, about the backyard photographs in 2017 which you can obtain along with Larry Rivera's book at moonrockbooks.com. Now, while Amazon has banned six of my books on Sandy Hook, the Boston bombing, Orlando and Dallas, Parkland, Charlottesville, even the moon landing, Amazon has banned all six of those books. They have not banned my books on 9-11 or JFK. So you can also get it at Amazon, but I encourage Go to moonrockbooks.com and check out those two books. You will not be disappointed. And Jeremy, I'm just thrilled, delighted that you've invited me to address these issues because it's, it is, as I subtitle, solving the, 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 the world's greatest murder mystery. This is the greatest murder mystery in history. That's a subtitle to my book, JFK, Who, How, and Why which you can get at moonrockbooks.com. Just been a joy being with you, Jeremy. And if you got any danglers you want to toss in, I'm glad sure. I'm here. Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're obviously going to come in for a little bit of a landing. Um, but I, I want to ask you something. How many people on the day knew what was about to happen? Oh, there had to be, you know, it was all compartmentalized now, bear in mind. Everyone only knew what their role would be. They didn't know the big picture. But, I mean, they're 50 anyway, you know, I mean, the key players. Uh, so who, uh, are the, who are the key players? When when H.L., when e, e. Howard Hunt, who worked for the agency and was in Dallas that day, but was not the third of the tramps, that was Chauncey Marvin Holt, whom I got to know personally, thought he was about to die. He gave a deathbed confession to his son, St. John, who, whom I've met. Uh, and he told him the chain of command had gone from Lyndon Johnson to Cord Meyer, who was the head of covert officer of the CIA, to David Atlee Phillips, who is CIA Western Hemisphere, to William Harvey, who is CIA assassins worldwide, to David Sanchez Morales for the for the operation in Dallas on 22 November. And it would have been Romales who put together the hit teams uh, using, he would have used George Herbert Walker Bush and Edward Lansdale to lay out the whole assassination scenario. And we're even have a, let me, let me tell you an additional story then that ties this together further. Among my other contributors is Charles Crenshaw, who was actually in trauma room number one attending when JFK's moribund body was brought in. He was the last physician to observe the president. He actually 
closed his eyelids when he was placed into the bronze ceremonial casket. So he, he was kind of startled when later you see photographs from the autopsy and his eyes are open because Chuck Crenshaw closed them. Well, two days later, he was responsible for the care and treatment of the alleged assassin, Lee Oswald. And would you believe the hospital uh, operator told him he had a phone call from the White House. And he was in a state of disbelief when he picked up the phone and heard the booming voice of Lyndon Johnson telling him he wanted a deathbed confession. And uh, Crenshaw said, well, you know, sir, uh, uh, Lee's actually taking a turn for the better. I don't think he's going to die. And Lyndon said, there's going to be a man there in a trench coat to take the deathbed confession. You make sure you get that. And he said, well, sir, I, I don't think it's going to happen. But when he got back to the room, there was this big, imposing guy in a trench coat. It appears to have been David Sanchez Morales waiting to take a deathbed confession. But Lee Oswald took a turn for the worse and died. There's a, there are other fascinating stories here about how Lee was shot in the basement of the police department, but not by Jack Ruby, but by an FBI agent wearing Jack Ruby's clothes because they couldn't count on Jack to follow through, which Ralph, Ralph Sankey has done absolutely brilliant work on that, Jeremy. So, so Lyndon, what, what was his role in this? He was, he was the mastermind behind the entire assassination. There's a wonderful book by uh, Phil Nelson called LBJ, Mastermind of JFK's Assassination. Lyndon was a ruthless guy. He'd brook no opposition. He was also a master manipulator. He could size up a man's weaknesses virtually upon meeting him for the first time. And he wanted to be president of all the people and set it up in Los Angeles, as I've explained, forcing himself on the ticket so they could take a jack and he would ascend to the presidency. Madeline Duncan Brown, I mentioned, who had an affair with Lyndon in the beginning in 1948, bore him a son, Stephen, in 1950. Because of their relationship, she was invited to all these social events in Dallas. The night before the assassination, she was invited to a social event at the home of Clint Murkison Sr., one of the great oil barons in Texas. Uh, it was a relatively small gathering, you know, just a couple of dozen. J. Edgar Hoover was there. John J. McCloy was there. Uh, a, a number of other significant players were there. When Lyndon showed up late in the evening unannounced, they disappeared into a, a, a meeting room for 15 or 20 minutes. And when it broke up, Lyndon strode over to her, and she told me, and she and I had over 100 conversations. Madeline told me she thought I was going to whisper sweet nothings in her ear. Instead, he told her in a hateful tone of voice that he... I'm not going to have to put up with embarrassment from those Kennedy boys after tomorrow. That's not a threat. That's a promise. He called her and told her the same thing the following day. Six weeks later, they had a rendezvous on New Year's Eve in the Driscoll Hotel in Austin, Texas, where she confronted him with rumors rampant in Dallas at the time that Lyndon had been involved since no one stood to gain more personally. Lyndon blew up at her and told her the oil boys and the CIA had decided that Jack had to be taken out. That's as close as you're going to get to a direct confession. But there are a whole string of books by people who knew Lyndon up close and personal, by Madeline herself. It's called Texas in the Morning, because when they'd get up, Lyndon would go throw open the windows and bellow out, 
God, I love Texas in the morning. There's one by by this man who, well, worked for the attorney who was Lyndon Johnson attorney, where they did a lot of the planning. There's uh, the Texas legend who was a scam artist who knew both uh, Malcolm Wallace and, and, and uh, Mac Wallace. Uh, 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 who knew both Cliff Carter and Mac Wallace and who, from his direct interactions, suspected they'd both been involved. Let me just mention about Mac Wallace. He was in the book depository on the opposite side from the alleged sniper's lair. No bullets were fired from the sniper's lair. Firing at John Conley and the mistaken impression that it was Lee, uh, uh, Ralph Yarborough, who is a liberal Texas senator that Lyndon despised. There's been a huge argument between LBJ and JFK that morning where Lyndon wanted to get Connolly, who was his crony, out and Yarborough in. But Jack overrode him on the ground that the chief executive of the state should ride with the chief executive of the United States. It was too late to get the word out to the shooter, so they did not know that riding would be the governor and his wife rather than a senator and his wife. And actually... Because Connolly was wounded, it obfuscated the politics because no one would believe that Lyndon Johnson would deliberately put John Connolly in harm's way. But Lyndon tried to get him out, and it was Jack who insisted that he ride with him, which had political benefits, as I've described. James, if... <laughs> I know this is, there's a lot going on here, but if I wanted to make a soundbite basically a paragraph that summarizes this entire conversation, then what would you say? Well, the bottom line would be it was all the way with LBJ, where if you distinguish between the sponsors, the facilitators, and the mechanics, there were powerful interest groups who wanted Jack out and Lyndon in for policy reasons, and then the anti-Castro-Cubans wanted retaliation, and each of them the sponsors appeared to put up their own shooter who are coordinated and orchestrated by George Herbert Walker Bush, who was actually in the Dow Tex with the anti-Castro-Cuban shooter. Nestor Tony Escadro fired three shots with Amanda Carcano to create the acoustical impression of only three shots having been fired, where all the other weapons were silenced except for that. And Edward Lansdale, who appears to have been positioned the shooters and determined the sequence of shots. You, you've mentioned uh, George Bush. Uh, did W have anything to do with any of this? Does he know anything? Well, oddly enough, George Herbert Walker Bush brought W along with him to Dallas, so we have photographs of W looking lost. No doubt because his father's been arrested coming out of the Dal-Tex and he doesn't know where he is. But, I mean, it was just obscene that he should have brought his son to the site of the assassination of JFK. But it's the sort of thing of which these evil figures are proud that they accomplish these kinds of Machiavellian feats. So, uh, yeah, W was there. Sure. Gee, uh, I could speak to you for hours, but I think, uh, I think there's enough information overload in this particular conversation until next time, James. So listen, I've got to say, if people want to, if I want to find more information uh, that, that you are distributing, where can I go? 
Well, I have, uh, you know, most of my books, except for the Sandy Hook, which has been embargoed by virtue of legal because it's so important and blows the whole case out of the water. You can find all the books that Amazon has not banned uh, at moonrockbooks.com. You can also go to my blog. I have a new blog at jameshfetzer.org, jameshfetzer.org. And then I have a BitChute channel, Jim Fetzer, and I recommend you, if you go to BitChute channel, Jim Fetzer, you can just look for the JFK special dedicated to Oliver Stone and download it, and you get everything here, just as you could get the book, JFK Who, How, and Why, at moonrockbooks.com, along with, and I highly recommend Larry Rivera's book, The Four Horsemen, and you'll have a pretty good sense of the current state of research on the assassination of our 35th president. James Fetzer, thank you so much for joining me in the trenches. My great pleasure, Jeremy, thanks. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.